Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Michael Rubino. Michael has over 25 years of experience in the food service industry. Throughout his career, he's run five restaurants, his own hospitality consulting business, and was the executive producer and co-host of one of the earliest reality TV shows, Made to Order, which was featured on the Food Network and subsequently was an international hit airing in over 150 countries. Along with his brother Guy, the Rabino brothers have been recognized as innovative restaurateurs throughout their entire career. Today, Michael is involved with Vertical Farms, which focuses on vertical indoor farming, growing the world's very best leafy greens and herbs. Welcome, Michael Rabino. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? <laughs> Thanks, Andrew, for that, uh, that, that intro. Um, I'm, in, uh, I'm in Toronto. And uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. It's been uh, it's been a weird couple of years, but uh, to I've say the least, to, yeah, to say the least. But uh, we've managed to get through it all on, on the right side, and uh, I'm doing I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. Let's jump right into present day. What are you working on these days? Sure. So, I mean, my days primarily consume the three different areas. One of the the one area is um, that we've been working on for for quite some time is. Uh, vertical farms, which is a um, vertical indoor farming uh, company that uh, is located in uh, East York, Toronto. <clears throat> and we distribute the product through a company called Roots Revival, um, rootsrevival.ca, if anyone wants to go check it out. And we, uh, so I'm involved in the, the growth of the company, the build out, all aspect. I'm one of the founders, founders of it. And we're currently in the in the in the process of starting to sell the product out. So we built out our facility, and it was finally completed upon in in uh, December of this of uh, 2021. And we started selling through to uh, specialty boutique retailers in uh, in Toronto, and um, and also now restaurants uh, have uh, have come on board as as the uh, COVID restrictions have uh, have been lifted. Mm-hmm. And uh, and to get back to hopefully some type of uh, normality and normal in uh, in hospitality. And then the other thing I do is I have a consulting practice which I've kind of wind down because I'm just too busy dealing with generally large corporations and helping them in in all kinds of whether it's product development or it's it could be or build out or concept design. Basically, between my brother and I, we have kind of the full package. We have the business acumen. We you know, built restaurants, negotiated leases, all kinds of different things. And so we, we, we have, have that as well. And then the third thing, which was kind of a really a fun thing that I, I we kind of just stumbled on, which was kind of neat, was doing a lot of uh, virtual classes, uh, cooking classes. And, uh, and uh, we started a made-to-order cooking, uh, virtual cooking online. And it, it kind of just fell through as an accident. My, a lot of my friends... Um, our partners at law firms and accounting firms. And when COVID first hit, they they were super busy, but they they had no way of really um, sort of socializing and and um, building up the morale and, and team team building. And they contacted us and said, "Hey, listen, do you you know would you mind doing you know a class, a cooking class?" And so we kind of just did it. Sort of, yeah, okay, sure, why not try it. And uh, to help them out, and then it just one led to another, to another, to another. <laughs> it's actually kind of fun because it's turned into a sort of uh, a business on, on on its own that sort of happens at night sometimes. Uh, so yeah, so that's what I've been up to. 
you are a true entrepreneur and obviously a shape shifter. You've gone with the flow. I'm going to come back to all three of those things that you're working on. But at this time, I want to go all the way back to where it started. Michael, where were you born? What was your upbringing? Oh, sure. Um, I was born in Port Colborne, Ontario, which is basically around Welland, Niagara region. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to, uh, my parents uh, are both immigrants from, from Italy, which sort of started our, our passion for food. As, as a young child, I distinctly remember, you know, my dad waking us up and going to pick like, you know, 10, 15 bushels of tomatoes mm-hmm. and, and then canning them all. And, um, and my mom was now has passed away. My dad's still alive. He's 93. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's, it still has a little garden. It's like, it's incredible. Like, yeah. He is completely self-sufficient at that age. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, but they, you know, grew up in a, a really traditional Italian household where, you know, food and family and, and, and we're all a big part of our, a big part of our lives. And, uh, we moved actually from Port Coburn into St. Catharines when I was uh, fairly young. And that's where I grew up. That's where I went to high school. And okay. it was kind of funny because we, we grew up in a, uh, in an area, which is almost predominantly Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, all our friends, you know, all the friends would want to come over. because My mom was always cooking. Like everybody in the neighborhood wanted to come to the Rubinos because, you know, if it was for dinner or for lunch or whatever. And, and as a child, I always had to remember it. I would always ask, ask my mom before I invited me, like, what are you making? Because sometimes she'd make things like rabbit. Mm. And, and in, in that time, um, you know, it wasn't very, uh, wasn't very well understood for young kids that you know, people actually eat rabbits uh, like they do in Europe. I can and see so, where you're heading with this. When did, the, when did the tripe come out? Yeah, exactly. There was another, that's another, tripe is another, exactly. So those are kind of traditional dishes that um, are, you know, were from my hometown, my parents grew, where my parents grew up, and uh, from their hometown, I should say, and, uh, and brought them here. The irony that all these dishes now are delicacies. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and we were kind of like growing up as, as kids. And I think one of the things I really remember is sort of taking a lot for granted. Just kind of, when I look back, and I, you, know, you don't really realize how much effort you work and how hard it is to, you know, make everything from scratch, you know, and, and yet my mom was working, my dad was working. I had an older sister and younger brother, you know, obviously guy and my older sister who's actually you know, was a doctor in, in Toronto mm-hmm. as well. And uh, yeah, so we grew up in St. Catharines. And I went to a high school there and, and then graduated and went to um, uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. What would you do at Laurier? Uh, I studied the business. I had uh, for uh, HBBA, um, and uh, I also with a uh, sort of minor in accounting. So that's what I did. It was a fun school. It was a great school. It's not very big, especially at that time. It was mm-hmm. very big, and uh, so you got you made a lot of great friends, and, and it was just a lot of fun. I had a lot had a lot of fond memories from that. That's and fantastic. That is, yeah, it was cool. It was really cool. When you finished at Laurier. Where did you mm-hmm. go, and did you have any kind of interesting first jobs? Yeah, so I went. I graduated from Laurier, and I had this idea that even though all my profs told me not to, to become a CA, a CPA. So I graduated, and I went and started working in Toronto for Price Waterhouse Coopers, and 
in audit. And so I was there for about a year, year and a half. And I just hated it. I mean, I, I just didn't know what else to say. I just hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, it, it just wasn't for me. I mean, my experience wasn't great. It was like, I was on, on one client all the time and they were in the resource business and it was just really boring, to be honest with you. And, and then I just kind of looked at what everybody that was ahead of me in terms of managers, partners, what they were doing. And I said, like, do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? And the answer was no. So I, so I quit <laughs> and uh, I had to go home and tell my dad, it's just kind of fun. Like, <laughs> that, that must've been, well, first of all, kudos to you to realizing that. I think today we recognize a lot more. There's a, a, a premium on your personal passion you don't necessarily have to follow the path that our uh, parents had done. But I got to imagine you going to your father and telling him you were going to leave a, uh, a very staid conservative firm, PwC, after all your schooling and everything. That must have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and at that time, too, not only was I leaving, but I was going to go start a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean... So here you've got, you know, this guy who came here, you know, basically with nothing, worked at General Motors as a laborer, worked really hard, you know, as an immigrant aspiring his children to sort of go to university and, be, you know, become a professional. And here I am, I've gone through all the, the past and very, you know, quite, quite well. And I was, I did really well in school. And, uh, and then I get there and I finally say, you know, dad, guess what? Um, I'm going to do this. He was, you know, kind of saying, are you sure? But and generally he was pretty supportive. I was quite surprised. My mom was for sure. Because her yeah. family always had their own businesses. So she was a little bit more sort of, I guess, understanding about the path I was trying to, trying to go in. And, and look at the implications. This, this also meant for your younger brother, this was probably going to give him a signal that maybe he didn't have to go to yeah. university and go into a, a more conservative business. Yeah, it's kind of real. So, I mean, he was at Carl. Um, and uh, I convinced him to transfer to uh, U of T, and we started our first uh, business together, which was like, you know, Gourmet Greens, what it was called, and it was mm-hmm. a small um, cafe that was in uh, Rosedale. Okay. And the objective there, it was kind of like a you know, sort of an upscale culture at the time. Um, and the objective there was to, you know, open a whole bunch of them and franchise kind of thing. And then, you know, then we got hit with like a recession. And this was like in the 90s. And it was a recession and, it was, you know, things like it was difficult. We were having, you know, financially it was really challenging. So we thought, well, you know, what do we do? And how do we, you know, how do we, you know, keep this going and, and, and flourish at it? So we started in um, catering. Okay. And that's how we really got into, into the business. So we went from, you know, a 1,500 square foot cafe to basically shutting the cafe down and operating exclusively in catering and servicing primarily the corporate market in the downtown core. And, and, what, and yeah. so it was kind of a, it was, it was a big, uh, it was a big leap. Well, that was one big leap, but how did you make that transition to your first restaurant? Well, what happened was at the time, because we were, you know, our catering business was really growing. It was incredibly successful. We had like eight vans on the road. Um, and, you know, it, it was, it was, you know, we were in the seven digits in terms of, in terms of revenue. Mm-hmm. So 
But at the time, a lot of other restaurants like Jump and Canoe started getting into um, catering. And because they had this big flag, flagship restaurant, they, you know, the market, it was way more sexier for people to order from them. So we said, okay, so what do we want to do and, and how do we want to grow this business? So we decided that uh, we would open up a flagship restaurant in the downtown port. And that was our very first, you know, sort of fine dining restaurant, which was called Zoom Cafe and Bar. And, and so this was the opposite or reverse of what I guess your competitors were doing. As you're saying, they had the brand already from their restaurant. Went into catering, you started with the catering. That's right. And, and we started with the, and the catering was what allowed us to, to open up a restaurant. Because, I mean, you know, at the time, I mean, it's, it's almost ironic because back in those days, like, people were spending fortunes on restaurants. Not that mm-hmm. they aren't now, but it's not, it doesn't seem to be at the same scale in terms of design. To some, to some extent. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Zoom was was a beautiful restaurant that won all kinds of uh, design awards, had a massive open kitchen. It was inside of, um, it used to be a bank. So the vault was actually where the kitchen used to be. And it was, yeah, wow. it was really, it was really, really fun and cool. It was at 18 King Street East, so it was right before. And so we operated the catering out of the back, and in the front, we have the, uh, the restaurant. You and your brother are Toronto restaurant legends. I'm going to read to you right now what Toronto Life once wrote. With Zoom, Rain, Lucci, and Strata 241, Michael and Guy Rabino helped set the standard for fusion fine dining and gorgeous restaurant design. They were early adopters of the shaved head look, pioneered unisex bathrooms, and popularized indoor water walls. For their sizzling black cod on a slate alone, Toronto owes them a debt. How nice is that to hear? How nice was it to hear at the time? Yeah, that was like, yeah, we, I mean, we had a lot of, we had a lot of press. I mean, especially when, when I mean, when Rain opened the special, I mean, we, we had so much press, like not just in Canada, but internationally. I mean, we were on the Letterman show, mentioned on the Letterman show. Wow. And, uh, and, you know, in the UK, like all over the place. It was, it was a really, it was a fun time, but it was really, I mean, we had, okay, so we had like, two fine dining restaurants running at the same time. We had a catering business running at the same time. We, um, we were producing and hosting a, uh, a television series that we, that we essentially, that ran for over three seasons, 39 episodes that we were, you know, we owned. It wasn't, we had only had a license agreement with Food Network Canada. So it was owned, which allowed us all kinds of opportunities internationally. So between the television show, the, the restaurants, we, we just had so much going on. And as a result of it, we had so much press, press all the time. I want to talk about that TV show. So as you mentioned, 39 mm-hmm. episodes bearing over, over this period in I had 2004 to 2007, how was this TV experience? How much, I mean, you were really an early reality show. How much was scripted? How much was reality? How invasive was the, uh, the production side of it? Cause you were operating a restaurant at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the first part of that question, uh, how it, it was, I mean, that was why the show was so successful. It was different. It wasn't your traditional 
cooking show that aired. And so it was reality. And, it, and none of it was scripted. It was just, it was Guy and I. Guy and I would sort of decide what the show was going to be about. And we would set all the parameters up for it to be. And when we were filming in the restaurant, I mean, it was interesting because even the network at the time, they wanted us to put in like actors into the restaurant and mm. try to simulate the experience. And we said, you know, no, 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 enough stuff goes on here in real time that you don't have, we don't have to create any crap. It will just happen. Fill the restaurant up with a bunch of patrons and, uh, and, and, and let's just let the cameras roll and we'll guarantee there was action. There'd be action as they call them, water cool, water cooler moments. Water so we cooler did. moments. Yeah. And so we did. And, and they, I mean, to their credit, they were great. They, they said, sure, let's go for it. See how it goes. And, uh, and we, um, and we started filming in the restaurant real time. I mean, people knew the cameras were on, but there was, they were very like, after a while you would just forget because it wasn't lit. Right. It was, the cameras were just in very strategic positions. So after a period of time, and I was mic'd. Guy was mic'd, obviously. And uh, but you couldn't see you couldn't see the mics right until it became very spontaneous. And the and so were the so were the people that were were there. And it certainly showed in the during the show, which was called Made to Order. I'm not a media expert by any means, but I think you and your brother were probably one of the first to brand yourselves. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is this is pre-Gordon Ramsay, pre-David Rocco, pre-Guy Fieri. You really use this opportunity to brand yourselves. Would you agree or comment on that? Um, yeah, we, I mean, we we certainly we certainly made an effort and were unique. I mean, I think part of it of branding ourselves were you know there was two brothers that you know one was a one was a chef with, with a tremendous amount of artistic ability my brother obviously and then there was my myself which was more the business focused and those two worlds colliding were often what the what the um what the series were and what i think sort of created our our brand is as as sort of the rubino brothers who you know front of house back out it's not just about a chef it's about about two people and, and 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 experiencing the full array of the uh of the uh of the back of the of the restaurant hospitality, sort of taking the veil off of sort of that experience. So I think that in itself kind of branded itself. And I mean, and, and the show had like so much success. Like, I mean, internationally, we were. I mean, we were constantly having going up all over the place for not just filming but for events. Like we were, we went to Hong Kong to invited to, to Hong Kong for the grand opening of the Four Seasons Hotel. And we were the hosts with uh, Moet and Chandon for like a whole series of events that ran for a week. So we, we had so, so many, you know, opportunities as a result of the show and met so many people that it was, uh, it was really exciting. It was really fun. And a lot of those people we still know today. It's, you know, I mean, a lot of those, one of the coolest thing about the show is, and because it had so much international success, outside of Canada and we were in the U S market. We were in, you know, all over Asia, really popular in Asia. We were, you know, really popular in South America that, you know, we fostered a lot of, a lot of, uh, made a lot of great relationships with people that we still keep in touch with today. So, now that, yeah. 
that show was 15 years ago. I do want to ask you, what is the weirdest or most unlikely place that you've been recognized? And, and even today, how often does that happen based on this show well, being such a success internationally? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Okay, so we were in Singapore um, doing an event. Um, it was the Singapore or World Gourmet, uh, Gourmet Summit, which is a really cool event they have every, every year. And, um, and you're invited to all the chefs. We were, again, one of the hosts of the entire event. So we arrived in Singapore, and everybody is kind of like, well, Guy and I get there early, and we leave the hotel, and there's this really cool sort of shopping area that we go to, and we're walking, and everybody's stopping and looking at us. I'm going, like, what the hell? Like, I know what air is here. I'm like, really? Like, no, we're not. <laughs> you know, we're not really used to that. And then all of a sudden, I look up, and the street, is lined with posters of us. You know, you have those flags sort of on the, on the street poles mm-hmm. that's the, that you uh, see sometimes when you walk with advertising shows or whatnot. And there's a guy on, on all these flags all the way down the street. And I'm like, oh my God. So, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of weird. And, yeah. and people just stopping you constantly wanting to take pictures. We still, I still get it today. We still get all kinds. Of, I mean, I, I'm surprised. I think because the show is so unique and different that it touched a lot of people in different ways. And so, um, I, you know, we still constantly get stopped. You know, and as you say, it, it's a, it's a timeless show in the sense of it could, it probably is being shown somewhere today and it must uh, catch you a little off guard when someone <laughs> asks you about it as if, you know, you had just filmed it yesterday because they just yeah. saw it yesterday. It's so true. Yeah. I mean, it's airing in, in, in Europe right now. In different spots. <laughs> you know, I had my aunt in Italy you know, you know, like five years ago, called me and said, "Oh, I saw you on TV, or you know, you're being aired in in Italy and and, and whatnot. And it's so cool." And I'm like, "Oh, so yeah." It, there's something about that show that was timeless. Um, the food was like, you know, I like it's still. I look at those dishes a guy was putting up, and I could honestly say that. Uh, I mean, they were still they're still cutting edge even today. Never mind you know, number of, number of years uh, number of years ago. But, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's fun. It's, I mean, the cool thing, the funny thing about being on TV is that when you're on camera, people kind of like, you, you don't, they, they see you and, and they become, they get to know you and they feel that like they know you. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden you're walking down the street or wherever and people start talking to you as if you're kind of like friends <laughs> and, and you're kind of going, well, like, I don't even have no idea who this person is. And, and so, so it's, it's, it's kind of a weird experience. It makes for an intimate relationship, even though you didn't know you had one. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. I, I don't want to uh, get into your uh, personal business too much, but I'm curious, just as a, a, a entrepreneur and an interested entrepreneur myself, what are the economics of that TV show? I understand made to order went into syndication. I don't even, frankly, I don't even know what that means, but how, how did that all work? And how does that impact you today, if at all, that that, that made to order is still showing? Yeah. So. I mean, it's every deals deals are different, right? And, and so, what we, when we made made to order, it was with the original show was with Food Network Canada, and they give you so much per episode to film, and they then and then you get tax credits if it's Canadian that help you know off, to offset some of those costs, and then you know then it's sort of up to you to produce the show, right? So. We put a lot of our own money into the show because we wanted to shoot in HD 
we wanted it to be a better quality show that would have international appear. So we appeal. So we worked on a deal with the Food Network that we were just going to license the show to Canada to them, but we would retain the rights to the rest of the world. And that was the best, best decision that we ever made because what that allowed us to do was to go out and start to seek other production companies like other ones in the U.S. and in Asia that we could co-produce with, which means we would get more money from them. And that when we sold the show, we would profit from it. So, you know, like, and, and, and it is profitable. I mean, our, our, our series sold to our U.S. broadcast in the first two seasons for like 400 grand. So you can make, you know, good money off it if you structure the deal properly. In terms of today, it's pretty much like we pretty much, you know, the odd sort of check kind of tickles in, but it's pretty much, you know, it's pretty much done. Um, we get the odd inquiry, but they're, the secondary and third markets are relatively low, and they like, they pay so much per episode. Oh, two comments. First of all, what a leap of faith at that stage in your careers to say you're going to put your own money in. That's a definition of an entrepreneur. And the second is you are obviously, you're well ahead of your time. Today we're seeing all, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but we're seeing a lot of recording artists who are realizing they're, they're, the songwriting, the back catalog is where the money is, and they should have retained the rights to that. And you did this. This was 15 years ago. Yeah, it was truly, I mean, I, you know, that's really what differentiated it. And, and part of that, too, to be really honest, was we wanted control over the show. So we didn't want, like, by putting money in ourselves, by doing that, we were then had the ability to negotiate much more aggressively with the networks and say, you know what, we're putting our money in. So we have a say in terms of how. I mean, some of the, you know, we, we didn't want it to be a cheesy sort of competition, make someone cry kind of show. <laughs> like, I mean, that at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was bold, but, uh, you know, it, it, it stemmed from the idea that we wanted to control the product and the quality of product. And we believe that if we were able to control it and, 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 put out a really good quality product, it would transcend into getting our money back plus more when we get into other markets. Because at the end of the day, Canadian markets really small. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like our counterparts were, like, you know, we, we, we were on tour with Anthony Bourdain through Discovery okay. when we were doing, when we were doing shows all through, all through Asia. And, you know, like in Canada, like, unfortunately, the, the there, there just isn't the same sort of, um, shall I say, celebrity status, financial rewards that are that that come out of it. Even even Food Network Canada kind of pissed me off at times because they would always be plugging their. Uh, our show was like one of the number one rated shows on the network because we had mm-hmm. access to all the all the stats, and yet you know they would plug the shit out of Jamie Oliver's show and and not plug ours, and they would plug the mm-hmm. crap out of. You know, and, and then you would go to sort of Asia and it was a complete reversal and opposite. Like you'd be picked up at the airport in a, in a limousine. You'd be taken to like the best hotel in the city. You know, you'd be, they'd take you out to dinner at the, you know, Bank of China's exclusive private restaurant, like, you know, at the top of a tower. Like, so it was like going from, you know, one extreme <laughs> to, to the other. So. 
yeah, it was it was kind of fun. Hey, Michael. On that note, when the, yeah. in these foreign markets, did they? How much did they value you and your brother based on you being Canadian? Or how much did that factor into it? You know, funny you mentioned that. Most of the people thought we were we were American, and and I think it's because of the way the show was shot. And when they found out we were Canadian, because um, it always would end up coming out with interviews. And, um, you know, Canada always has such a great positive um, sort of, uh, you know, I guess reputation around the world as being nice, as being, you know, sort of the nice people, the, the clean people, the, the people that always kind of do the right thing. So it was, it was always really positive. But, but ironically, People used to like most people thought we were in, in 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 the in the in the U.S. In fact, we used to get this happening to us all the time. Because when we had rain, it was on Mercer Street in Toronto, mm-hmm. and then there's a Mercer Street in Manhattan, which is in in Soho. Okay, and people used to be calling us from Soho, Mercer. No, oh. they where is this restaurant? <laughs> I can't find it anywhere. And I'd be like, well, you know. So I'm like number 19. We're like number 19, Mercer. And they're like, there's no number 19. I'm like, well, like, where are you? You don't even where I'm in New York. I'm like, no, no, we're in Toronto. And it was kind of funny. Kind of I'm standing outside. I can't find the door to your restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It was like hilarious. And so it was, it was really hilarious. I want to talk about your uh, relationship with your brother and how you're perceived. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You were known as the fraternal foodies. Michael, the business brain guy, the chef, and you're constantly lumped in as brothers as opposed to individuals. I have a brother with a similar head shape and hair profile to me. And the joke has always been my parents would just yell out, Andrew Lawrence, Andrew Lawrence, because they couldn't differentiate us. And I, uh, you know, you lose some of your individuality, but there's also, of course, nothing pleases me more than to be confused for my brother. How do you feel about that? And where do you kind of see the difference between your individual Michael Rabino and your collective brand as the Rabino brothers? That's kind of funny. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when we were younger, especially people used to make us up all the time. In fact, it used to be like media. Even today, if I go back and look to the media, call me Guy and Michael. They'll call me Chef, and, and or both of us chefs. I'm not the chef; he is. Um, but you know, it was kind of, it was kind of, you know, we we've always gotten along in in a big way, especially as we got older. And you know, as as the brand Rubino Brothers got more popular within media through the television show, we kind of just went and and it, you know, even though we are, we're different in a lot of ways, we obviously have a similar passion for design for food and and for family and for, for you know people that are you know maintaining great relationships with, with friends. And so we had a lot of common friends and fam obviously family, but we had a lot of common friends. And we we just sort of, you know, I was kind of just went with it to be honest with you. And I never really bothered me. I, I, I never, you know, I haven't really thought about it that way in a lot of ways. But you know, we are definitely different. Guy is very big. I mean he is a you know he is an artist, not you know he's he's a musician. He plays, you know, multiple instruments, writes music, um, obviously creative. And, and whereas I, I have absolutely zero creative, like, you know, I, I was taking guitar lessons and the teacher when I was younger told my parents to stop wasting their money. 
And, and uh, so, you know, we have differences. I tend to be more, you know, business oriented um, and, uh, and then, than him, but it works. Like, you know, it just works. Like we're still partners today in everything we do pretty much. And, uh, and so, you know, who can't, who more, I mean, the, the cool thing about being partners or in business with family members is that you can yell at them. You can tell them what you really think. And while they might take it personally right then and there, over time, because you're a family, you kind of have to get over it. Whereas that doesn't always happen in all business relationships. True enough. And it's fabulous, to, especially families, to have a partnership and to do it within your own family. There's, there really is nothing better. I want to talk to you about the restaurant business today. Uh, I noticed just this week uh, a pizza place called Junior's Pizza has eliminated all these third-party delivery apps. And it's yeah. kind of ironic. They're kind of going back to 1970s. When you want a pizza, you have to phone them via your rotary phone, perhaps, and they will deliver the pizza to you themselves. It's kind of crazy. And yet I totally get it because the economics aren't working with these third-party delivery places. How much is technology killing the restaurant business today or am I looking at it the wrong way? It's actually enhancing it. And I realize your restaurant experience was quite different than a takeout pizza joint, but what are your views on yep. if I came to you today and said, I, I was thinking of opening a restaurant in Toronto. Yeah. Well, that's a little good. I mean, okay. For the first, the first part of your question is has te- how has technology impacted the business? A lot of what's happened with technology is that it's taken the power away from the restaurant and put it in the hands of the consumer. And and what I mean by that is that the consumer now feels they can should have or be able to have anything they want whenever they want from a restaurant. And and with a place like Juniors, if we use that as an example, because I know you're talking, I know I, I know that um, that particular situation somewhat. And and not only was it the fact that the delivery apps are taking huge huge chunks of money, which is a separate conversation to begin with. In itself, but more importantly, they become the wall between the restaurant and the consumer. And in my opinion, that connection is extremely important. So, you know, I was on the phone about a month ago with Danielle Boulay and um, Drew Nearport, who started Nobu, and 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 we had this exact same conversation. And the conversation was. You know, the delivery driver shows up. I close my, this is Daniel Boulet. The delivery driver shows up. I close my eyes as he takes my, my food that I've, we've spent, you know, whole team spent uh, hours on and stuffs it in the back of his knapsack mm-hmm. and then goes off and delivers it. I have no idea what the end user is going to, um, is used to get. And I think it's the same thing Junior was saying. It's not just the fact that they take a big chunk of the money. It's like they're they're destroying our product to to you know to the consumer. And at the end of the day, the consumer is going to get the product and is going to say, "Hey, I ordered this pizza from Junior's, and it now it's cold, and you know all the, the toppings are all over the place, and the pizza's upside down." They're not really going to go well, Uber. Is that fault? They're going to blame the restaurant, and they probably won't order from. It. So there's this sort of wall that's been set up, 
<clears throat> now with technology that disconnects the restaurant um, with the end user. And, and as a result, I, I don't think that's a good thing. It's um, about controlling the experience, controlling your brand and about exactly losing, losing control, losing control. And, and so, I mean, again, getting to what you're saying about a restaurant and, and you know, how would I advise people? If you're going to get into the delivery business, make sure that the food that you're, del- that you're planning on delivering actually transcends well in that process. So, you know, hamburger and french fries is probably not the best thing to get delivered to your door because by the time you get it, you know, french fries are going to be cold and soggy and so are the hamburger and the bun. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, something like faux, for example, which is more of a sort of brothy kind of thing, that would that would obviously work a lot better in a delivery format. So if you're going to get go down the path of delivering food, being part of it, make sure everything that you are offering from a delivery perspective is food that that carries well in that environment. So, I certainly COVID has supercharged all these issues related to delivery and how your food holds. And now that we're entering a period where it looks like people are going to return to restaurants. What do you see in the change in dining in or are we not going to be dining in? Has, have we tipped permanently towards taking our food and sequestering ourselves at home to enjoy it? <clears throat> well, I think people, a lot, a lot of people have realized that, you know, that they've, they've learned that, you know, that, that could be done and it works and economically, especially if you're drinking, you know, it's, it's, it's very cost effective. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of people, especially if you live in downtown Toronto, even if you're just renting an apartment, you know, it's like two grand a month just for a basic apartment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, you know, your dollar goes a lot further if you stay home than if you go out. So that's one thing I think a lot of people have sort of realized and that you can still have, you know, and still be, still be social. But I think at the end of the day, you know, the, the biggest thing that's happened with COVID is that it, it destroyed a lot of the fine dining establishments. And, and as a result, I'm not sure they're coming back. So that's my, you know, that's my biggest take. Like, I look at people like Grant Van Cameron, who was just on the blowing up and had great restaurants in, in Toronto. And now he's up in Prince Edward County. I'm not even sure what he's doing up there. Mm. And and uh, you know I don't think he has any plans to come back. You know Brandon Olson, another chef who actually worked for us at Rain, <clears throat> very talented and an individual. His restaurant is is closed and uh, with no plans of reopening. So I you know I I'm really kind of concerned as to where there are very few really good restaurants doing amazing pro amazing things right now. And, um, and I hope that, that they manage to survive because the ones that generally have, have the ability to survive, have some type of third party investor that's backing them, which is great. But the ones that were like, like us, that were just completely independent, self, self-funded have, have a lot of them have, have, have just, are, are, or they've done such a deep work that uh, now, Go back, add in all the layers of what's happening, labor, and add in all the layers of, you know, real estate. Like prices are gone through the gone through the roof, 
And then I think there's hesitancy for people still to go out. Like, I don't see us going back to normal for a while still. I still think there's a lot of consumer, a lot of consumers out there that still are not ready to go go out and eat on a regular basis like we used to. So I, I, I see a challenging road ahead for, for people I, I hate to say. Michael, I want to talk more about a point you brought up. As a restaurateur, today, when you're opening a restaurant, you can't go it alone anymore, strategically or financially. That's something you've said in the past. What does that mean? And I guess it sounds like it's even more relevant today. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, it's just too much money. When we opened up Rain, we spent $1.8 million, which was unheard of mm-hmm. back then, which was unheard of. Then. And everyone said, you've got to be crazy to spend that money. And, you know, you, you can't, like, banks, whatnot, you know, they, they all want restaurants in their buildings, but they don't want to finance. So, you know, where do you get the money? And, and now a lot of restaurants are, you know, north of two, two million. So you need to, A, make sure that you have other people that have access to funds to be able to build out the place. And then B, not only are they, how do they have to be able to have partners that have the, the ability to help finance it, but B, have ability to drive business. And, and that's, that's really important. So looking at for a good example would be Canoe. Okay. Canoe's owned by the OMB group. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so TD Bank, which was how lured Canoe, that, that restaurant to, to be in, which is kind of like, they're kind of like partners. They give them like a ton of business for catering and private dining. So, you know, you need to sort of, strategically align yourself with business people that can help generate business, drive business through the restaurant, as well as help finance the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, but it's almost like a, a necessary in, 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 in this day and age. Um, so it's not only looking for a partner who can financially support you, but a partner can, who can help you on the, the consumer side, so to speak. hundred percent. I mean, at the end of the day, restaurants are all always busy Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, right? And those those nights, you know, you kind of you kind of make you 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 know you do well those nights. But if you really want to be successful, you got to be busy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And and those days of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are hard in in Toronto. Are are particularly hard to fill um, your restaurant. So you need to get. Um, you need to have get help in terms of being able to try business in those nights. Particularly. Well, it's, it's very interesting to me that in your past, so you talked about your first restaurant self-financing effectively. And as you developed your brands and moved on in the industry and worked on different restaurants, you did get in partnerships. And if I may, I want to ask you, uh, Charles Caboot is known widely as Toronto's club king. I don't know if he was into restaurants at the time, but if I have it correct, uh, one of your partnerships in the past was when you recast one of your restaurants as Ame, which focused on contemporary Japanese. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, like, uh, about the experience of working with a partner such as that and, uh, and, and how that all came together and the resultant, uh, how you feel about that 
versus doing it yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it was an interesting. <laughs> I mean, it was an interesting idea in, in the sense that Charles used to come into the restaurant, and his partner, partner Dan, used to come in. So we knew each other, and over the years, um, obviously, you know, he was known for his, his being a club guy, and we were in the process of sort of rebranding Rain to reopen, which Rain was means Ame means Rain in Japanese. Okay. That which is what. So we were in the process of doing that. And Charles came into the restaurant because he always loved the design of the restaurant and was having dinner. And, and he said, you know, why don't we sit down and chat afterwards? Which is not uncommon because everyone always, a lot of people do that. So we sat down and, and chatted and he said, you know, you know, I think this is a gorgeous space. The location is amazing. You know, I, you guys are really talented. Have you ever thought about, you know, what, what you know, thinking about doing something together? And 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 the idea was, you know, Guy and I understood and knew the fine dining business and had a clientele that, you know, that people knew who we were and wanted to always come to the restaurants. And he understood the nightclub business. So you know, the idea being the restaurant would work till, you know, 11 o'clock or so, and then it would transition to sort of more of a, a nightclub. Okay. So, so you know, theoretically, it sounded like kind of a you know, interesting relationship, right? Financial, and especially where, you know, you're basically taking the same space and using it for kind of two different purposes, generating additional revenue that you wouldn't have. Because in the fine dining space, at 11 o'clock, it's pretty much done. And, uh, and, and, and and it's over by midnight, whereas the clubs go till four in the morning. So that was sort of the, that, that's sort of how that came to be. And and so we decided that uh, we would move forward and we, you know, became partners. And when I, what I ended up happening was, you know, it's kind of like oil and water. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Charles does things in a certain manner, I'll just say. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, we didn't really agree with it. And we were always just always butting heads about, like, everything. The, the, how loud the music was going to be. You know, you know, what people were supposed to wear, how they were supposed to dress, like, you know, meeting the staff, all that kind of stuff. Hmm. And, you know, like I said, theoretically it was a great idea, but in practice, in practice it, you know, just didn't work. Yet a nightclub guy was focused on, you know, bringing in DJs and cranking the music and, you know, having all these crazy, you know, uh, parties or promos. And then on the other side of the point, you had these two guys who, you know, were into food, into quality, fine dining, into sort of, you know, much more conservative, I guess, to some extent. Uh, and we would just butt heads and it just didn't work. Really. Well, it's very interesting as a case study, because as you say, from a business perspective, making an asset more productive absolutely makes sense. And then when in any partnership, I guess there's more of the soft side. What are the, how did the two different partners see things rolling out? So I think the uh, experience must have been, you, you can't, you don't know what you're getting into. And then as you go through it, you certainly learn a lot. And I'm, I'm sure that applies to your, everything you got involved with afterwards that you, you learn quite a bit from an experience like that. Yeah, you really do. I mean, you really, you know, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot from it. Um, you know, primarily, you know, I, I guess part of the thing too is, is that, 
when you you really when you're talking to people about businesses and, and getting involved, it, it's always it's always great to it's always easy to agree in the beginning when everyone is, is great, and we we don't spend enough time, or generally people don't spend enough time talking about how to disengage or if it doesn't work, mm-hmm. and and those are important conversations because you know because you, you want to be able to have a clear path, clear exit strategy in the event. So it doesn't get sort of ugly or it doesn't get, um, you know, it doesn't become such a, a truly negative experience. And then most importantly, I think you need to align yourself with individuals that have the same values as you do. And like, to be totally frank, you know, Charles and I like have absolutely nothing in common. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we just, we just come from different worlds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and while, you know, he's been successful, um, in nightclubs and he keeps opening a lot of restaurants. I wish him and his partners and all the people that work there all, all the success in the world, but I would never want to work with him mm-hmm. so, for all those reasons. Let me talk about maybe, and I certainly appreciate your candor to the, to the general person such as myself. We like hearing how, how things work kind of behind the scenes. And one area I wanted to ask you about is your relationship with restaurant critics uh, I would presume they were much more important in the past when the newspapers were the medium or magazines for getting yeah. news to consumers. But today, everyone's a restaurant critic. If you have a social media account, you're a restaurant critic. Yeah. Perhaps they can be bypassed. What's your relationship with restaurant critics in the past and what is their importance today? Well, you know, I'm, I, okay, so their importance today is that they've almost become irrelevant. To, mm-hmm. For the same reason, it's just that everybody has a voice now, and and they clearly will tell you what that is, which is very like frustrating because you've got a lot of people that have absolutely no knowledge about food in general, and yet you know they're posting about negative experiences, which you know obviously go you know some people do take seriously when they when they uh, when they are tr- trying to decide where to go. In the past. Like my personal experience has been with restaurants and we had pretty good relations with most of them. There were a few critics I had absolutely no respect for. And, and so, and, and I guess partly because we had our own voice so loud because we had a television series and we, you know, we were busy all the time. We just didn't really care much about what re- restaurant critics, because we didn't really think, they were as powerful as they were meant. They made themselves out to be mm-hmm. a restaurant critic in, in, in New York writing in the New York times will keep you busy. A good review in the New York times will keep you busy for months on end, almost mm-hmm. a, you know, a good year, a good, re- good review by someone at the Globe and Mail or the Toronto star or Toronto life was, yeah, okay, great. But it didn't really have an impact on on your sins. Mm. So I guess my question was simple in the sense that for the restaurant critics that I I, I joined and I like talking with and I thought were knowledgeable and really would rather provide you um, would provide good feedback that you could use and actually improve your restaurant. And then there were other critics that I had absolutely no respect respect for because of just what they said, what they did. In fact there was one critic I won't get into but I, I threw him out of the restaurant before he mm. As they walked in, 
I just, and, and it made all the headlines and the lyrics because uh, they came in and I just said, you know, listen, I, you know, I don't like you. I don't have respect for what you do um, and how you write. Um, you know, I mean, there were experiences where guy was coming in and he was, you know, getting trashed at the restaurant. How you, you know, he was commenting on the desserts. And I'm like, you can't even remember what you had to yeah. dessert. How are you going to write about it? Anyway, so, you know, that was sort of my experience with it. I, I don't think they wait, even back then, I think they got, they, they, they thought they had a lot more power than they actually did. But when it actually came into a good review, actually transcending into a, um, a, a you know, busy restaurant, I don't think it was the case. Hmm. I want to talk, Michael, about your, one of your prongs, one of the things you're working on now, Vertical Farms. Yep. Uh, my wife has a tower garden and is growing her own lettuces. Is is this the consumer version of what you are doing commercially? Yeah, I mean, it's using the same principles. I mean, the difference being is that you know we're doing it on a much you know, on a commercial on a commercial on a commercial scale. Mm-hmm. So the results are you know are, are like the light, the lights, the water, the, the, the way that the system is set up. Um, will produce a much, you know, much more volume as well as a higher quality product. Um, and the focus today is eat local and grow local. And is that what kind of you're tying into with this? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, as we decided that we were, you know, getting out of the restaurant business and no longer really want to do it anymore. Um, we started to look for you know other things that we, that would keep us connected to the restaurants, uh, to the hospitality business, and also provide sort of, you know, uh, a, a feel good or a purpose that uh, sort of aligned with what, you know, our interests were. And we, you know, we, we landed on, on vertical farms and roots revival and, and, and because of all the, for all the obvious reasons, like, you know, this is the way we're going to be eating moving forward. Right. It, it's, it's, come to a point where conventional farming is not working. Climate change is wreaking havoc. More people are moving to urban centers. Populations are growing. You know, you know, we have issues with, with, you know, how much time and travel costs to get product from, you know, California, wherever it's coming. Chile um, is becoming, you know, unapproachable for most, for most families. And, and this is a solution to many of those problems. And the technology has now reached a point where it, um, <clears throat> it it can compete with conventional farming. In fact, you know we're we're selling rest, we're selling right now. We just dropped off a whole bunch of samples to so uh, you know the uh, Scotia Tower, the canoe, mm-hmm. and the, the chefs are just saying, "Wow, the product the pro the, the product is just off the charts." Like they can't believe that it's, you know, March and they're getting this kind of a quality product hmm. um, that in, in the middle. So, you know, those are all, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you just tell people what you're doing, they just, they just nod and say, yeah, that, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. It's getting the product into their hands as well. They, they become believers when they see it. They just have to try, like, exactly. Like, it's just, they try it once they try it. It's, uh, it's it's a done deal. Like, I mean, it's it's really good. Like, it's it's also non-GMO. Okay, mm-hmm. we we source all the seeds from you know from origin. So, example, our Tuscan kale, the seeds come from Tuscan, and and the seeds are all organic. 
Um, it's ready to serve, meaning you can eat it. Arguably, washing it with tap water would make it, would contaminate it more because it's, mm. the water we use is completely purified and it's in a system that is completely enclosed and the plants live in this, this happy environment and whatnot. <clears throat> so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it just, no, no pesticides. Like it just hits all of the markers of what people are tending to look for right now. Mm-hmm. And it's local. So, you know, you harvest it today, you get it tomorrow. So in terms of nutrients, like as you, as a plant or vegetable produce or vegetables sit after they've been, their roots have been severed every day or every hour that goes by, they're losing nutrients. So if we're getting vegetables from California, by the time it hits our plate, we've lost a substantial part of those nutrients. Mm-hmm. Whereas our product has the root on it, it's living, and you know you're getting um, your you know the nutritional value is significantly higher. That sounds fantastic, and you're uh, you're right on top of all the things that are important to consumers today. And I'm going to give your encouraging words to my wife as she continues to work on her tower garden. Yeah, good for her. When you uh, uh, let me sh- shift gears here as we get close mm-hmm. to wrapping up. I want from you, Michael, two of your favorite Toronto things to do or places to be or places to eat. I'm going to allow you to give me one that's well-known. You know, everyone's going to say, we see in Tower, don't miss it. But I'd also mm-hmm. like you, if you don't mind, to give us one hidden gem. Sure. Um, well, the one that's well-known are Rob Rossi um, restaurants. Are both of them are good. Are great. His new one's fantastic. Julieta, which is the one I've been to on a number of occasions. I love they're doing um him and his partner uh, anyway his partner worked for us for for a number of years they're putting out a really great product they're one of the few people left that um i think are um you know real true true truly providing um food dining experiences because that's what i call it I don't, it's not about mm-hmm. just restaurants it's about experience um and then wow this is a secret gem you know, that's a tough one and it doesn't have to be a place to eat. It can be just something you enjoy doing in Toronto. Oh, yeah. yeah I love going to Kensington. In fact, I love, you know where I love going? I love going to Coral Seafood. Mm-hmm. Coral Seafood are, I buy all my seafood from those guys. Um, they're brothers. They've been running that business for 30 years. They're your traditional food, uh, fishmongers. They've always got the best product. And it's, you know, to go there and buy their stuff, and then go to Loblaws is like night. It's two different worlds and, mm-hmm. and the product that gets delivered. And I love the fact that they still get up in the mornings. They go, they get the product, they bring it back and, and, and they sell it to their consumers. And, and it's, it's kind of old school and it's kind of a dying breed. I mean, Sandigan's meat markets like that too, Peter Sandigan mm-hmm. again there. So I, I love that whole sort of, you know, environment where, you know, Still local butcher, local fishmonger. I know it's a dying breed. I hope it doesn't go away because um, I think we're all going to lose a lot by that if it uh, if it if it ends. But um, those are the place. That's the place I really love. Those are nice recommendations, Michael. What are your plans for the remainder of this year and beyond? So the remainder of this year is really so. Like I said, we have Vertico, which is the business that's built that builds actual the farm 
and then we have a partnership with Bill Ban or uh, Steve Bamford for Bamford Produce, which their family essentially started the started the um, the food terminal that distributes the product. The product. So we're right now in the process of um, putting out a plan to raise funds for blowing up our ver the vertical farms, which means really you know taking advantage of the technology and selling systems wherever in the world and then the flip side of that is we're with the distribution company which we're planning on building another facility and grow that business so my what i see happening in the next year or so actively involved in raising funds and helping drive the direction of where the vertical farm is are going in terms of building actual farms and then on the flip side of that, while I'm doing that, it's it's developing um, the distribution arm of the company and selling products through to restaurants and retailers. And that's what my focus will be over the next 12 to 18 months. Well, I'm so glad we could talk to you today. You're obviously involved in some really exciting stuff going forward. I really appreciate your time joining me today. Where can we best follow or reach Michael Rubino and Vertical Farms and Roots Revival. Sure. Well, if you go to www.rootsrevival.ca, um, that's, you know, we're there in, in a big way. And um, as far as, uh, as far as that, Vertical Farms, it's verticalfarms.com. Uh, if you want to go see those sites, because they're, you know, they're very different. One talks about the building, the other one talks about the actual product. And, uh, and then, Reach me personally. Well, I'm on LinkedIn quite often, so if you ever want to reach out or anyone wants to reach out, I'm always, uh, I'm always happy to, uh, to respond. Fabulous. This has been great, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Michael Rubino, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. 
Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, undercurrent podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.